Hello, I'm John Atak. You all know that. And you also know that this is Karen Delacario, my good friend. Hi, Karen. Hi, John. I've uh, missed you and it's great to see you again. Always. Always good fun. And uh, we want to start on a serious note. Uh, we would like to pay tribute to Queen Elizabeth II. And um, I'm not really a monarchist, but um, I, I think she did a splendid job and she was a remarkable person. So there you go. Um, yes, I think that she was exceptional hmm. in terms of, she never caused controversies. She, she, she just steadfastly stayed, prime ministers came and went, presidents came and went, but there was something about her being almost like the grandmother of Great Britain. She was always there with a smiling, great presence. What, what a wonderful, what a wonderful person she was. It, and it's a, it's a unique role. I mean, there are other constitutional monarchies, Sweden, Denmark, um, Holland, I think are all, have got somebody there, but her part in representing Britain to the world and in keeping together the, the members of the Commonwealth, um, I think was was tremendously important and 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 very valuable. And she she was a woman. She was a highly intelligent woman, yeah. um, with a yeah. profound sense of humour. Did you see the the Paddington animation? Yeah, yeah. and the Double O Seven. What a wonderful thing for a woman of ninety five to be doing. <laughs> she really, she really did. Have, I, I. One thing that many people don't know is that in her weekly visits by the reigning prime minister, the prime ministers came and went, but they would have this audience with her and they could tell her anything. They could vent, they could share their ups and downs, their emotions. They knew that it was completely in the vault. How nice that some things they couldn't tell anyone else they could just come and tell the queen. So in a way, she was a therapist and listener <laughs> of every prime minister. Hmm. 15, was it 15 prime ministers? It's almost like, you know, Catholics go to a priest to confess or whatever. This wasn't prime ministers confessing, but they were sharing their innermost thoughts with the Queen of England. Mm. And she listened to it all because she was neutral, whether it was the Whigs or the Tories, they both felt safe enough to tell her. Do you know that she never even um, gave her opinion on Brexit? Mm. No one knew if she favored it or not. She was so neutral. Mm. What, a, what a discipline to now mm. have the urge to it express with <laughs> yeah yeah and I, I mean the series the crown which is is a remarkable piece of work in in terms of drama and in terms of history but uh, it it accurately reports her relationship with the labor prime minister harold wilson mm. who of course i think he was an oxford don he was an economic economics don and it's this interesting thought the man who was heading a, a labor party that was definitely socialist where they aren't anymore our labor party of decried socialist. I don't really know what they are anymore, but she got on very well with him. And, you know, they, 
had a friendly relationship, whereas Ted Heath, the Conservative, the Tory who replaced him, she did not get on with, and she had to tolerate him. And, and she was courteous and gracious. And as you say, unlike monarchs before, who were very expressive of their opinions, um, I think her father is really the first in the tradition, George VI, who sort of says, well, I shouldn't be commenting on that. And, you know, if, if you look back to her earlier life, born in 1926, she, of course, served during World War II. Yes. And, uh, yes. A mechanic. She was fixing yes. trucks. <laughs> yes. And, of yes. course, her, her mum and dad were going out during the Blitz and walking around. You know, they, they weren't in a bunker anywhere. They were... They were open to it and, and talking to people. So it was very important, I think. It feels like the end of an era. It is the oh, end. Oh, Charles has a hard act to follow. King Charles has a hard, his predecessor. I mean, her popularity, what a loved, what a loved presence she was. What a, what a great, great woman. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, really think she was an asset to Great Britain. Very much so, yeah. And yeah. as you know, in 2011, they signed over all of their income to oh. the state. So, and in oh. return, their expenses are paid. But, um, oh. you know, their income is considerable. And yeah. I think it's the proper thing to do. I think the state should own the, those, you know, properties and, and the income that comes from them. Um, mm. But but it, it makes me feel more comfortable that they're not sort of, they've, they've moved away from the billionaire club, you know. Yes. I, I wish everybody else would, because I think it's a horrible club. I don't think anybody should have a billion dollars. It's too much power. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and we also had a bit of news from a federal judge today, which you wanted. Oh, wow. Breaking news. David Miscavige has been hiding scurrying away from any server for years. Minus eight on the tone scale, isn't it? Hiding. 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 Just to put him in his place, you know. Yeah. He can't answer hard questions. He can't answer questions on the brutality, the sadism, the... Anyway, in this Valeska lawsuit, Valeska and Gawain and Laura, three Australians, who were child trafficked on a ship called Free Wings, this name, Scientology ship. They've been trying to serve David Miscavige. He was personally involved in some of their cruelty. Mm. And of course, all the security guards would deny that he lived there and denied that he worked there, all lies. And the Tampa federal judge, Thomas Barber, agreed to Dave short, short while ago, that Miscavige has been evading service in this labor trafficking lawsuit. And he's given the plaintiffs a, the court summons mm. to Miscavige. They asked for it, and the Tampa federal judge granted it. Mm. This is breaking news of them. And it's incredibly important. Um, at the end of his life, Ron Hubbard faced something like 300 court subpoenas, which he was managing to evade. And of course, if David Miscavige goes on the witness stand, he can be asked questions about everything he's done. 
and he can be charged with perjury if he's untruthful. And we are in this peculiar situation where he's managed to run a, a dictatorship that's like a little tin pot country um, and has kept people in chains. You know, it, it, it's like some medieval um, dynasty. And, and now the outside world and the actual justice system rather than the bogus Scientology justice system is ready to look at this. And we are dealing with the most serious of charges, human trafficking, modern slavery. This is what he's being accused with. And there won't just be three cases of this. There are hundreds and hundreds of cases of this, uh, possibly thousands of cases where people have been mo moved across borders. Like Mike Grinder, when he was uh, at 18, sent to the ship and his passport was taken from him, as was you know, quite typical at the time. And he was told he couldn't go home to Australia. And I've, I've interviewed so many people over the years that this happened to. So it's very important this goes in. It's a serious criminal act. And um, with any luck, it will put him in prison. He will otherwise need to flee the United States mm. and become a fugitive from justice, go and live in, I know, somewhere in South America or, or somewhere with the uh, remainder of the other Nazi uh, group that uh, lived there. Aren't all his properties be confiscated if he flees? Yeah, and anything that he has in the United States, um, though, I mean, it, I haven't really investigated this for a long time, but, but back in the 90s, we were aware that he had a living trust in the Netherlands, Antilles, um, where the free winds is registered. And it looked like that was the equivalent of the old Hubbard back door to the bank accounts. Mm -hmm. uh, so how much has gone in there? I, I don't know. But uh, it's, going to be in, it's, it's going to be very interesting. We're, we are certainly in the last few years seeing Scientology has moved from conservation into decay. And the last mm. part of the cycle will be death. And uh, we'll mm. see what happens then. Mm. Well, uh, I hope that this sets a precedent for all of those other process servers and other lawsuits, I hope because law is so, whatever happens today is pointed, <laughs> later, later law courts follow earlier decisions. It's yeah. always looking to what happened then and can it happen now? That's the way law rolls out. Mm. So hopefully this will be a great first on David Miscavige. Yes. and, and I I mean, it, it seems unlikely, even given the current Supreme Court there, which, which I have misgivings about, uh, but it seems unlikely that even the Supreme Court would overrule what, what is a summons for denial of service, that, that he has, it would appear, um, intentionally lied about his whereabouts. And that means that he now has to appear or he has to go on the run. Um, so... I mean, and I've always thought this was rather odd because you should be able to deliver a summons through somebody's lawyer. You should be able to deliver a summons to somebody who is the head of a corporation, such as the Religious Technology Center or Authors Service Incorporated. You should be able to, to serve them via the corporation. It, it's strange to me that that's not been happening, but there you go. John, he is the head of the snake. He, 
This Jinpot country, which is so beautifully worded, Jinpot country with its own, it's a regime of once you're in, you're bound. It's a dictatorship. And it's a dictatorship. My passport was compassed like, like anyone else. And one of the, uh, when it describes human trafficking, it gives the data points of what defines a human trafficking entity. And one of the points is they confiscate all your paperwork for travel. They confiscate your passports, your your visa, your any document you have that gives you mobility through passing through different countries. When you've been human trafficked, that documentation is confiscated. Do you know that Scientology still does that? On a ship that's they gave the excuse they didn't want people to flee the ship when they were off board so they held it but at the flag land base it's grounded yet all these people arrive from europe and immediately their passports are surrendered have to be surrendered on the routing form mm. yeah, very 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 do that right now even though it's nothing to do with the ocean and mm. anyway it shouldn't be done at any rate so you had a couple of knockout good themes for this show. Well, and let, let me preface this by, by saying that um, I, I researched Scientology from the moment that I joined it in 1974 through, through till 1996, where I decided that the uh, steamroller that had been running over me for the, the, you know 12 years by that time um, from my departure. I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I'd done very deep research. Um, a lot of material uh, became available publicly through me. Um, mm -hmm. And I pieced it together to, to see how it fitted together. And, you know, in 1996, so January 1996, I, I published the last piece that I wanted to publish, which was a little paper called recovering from Scientology and uh, somehow it got lost the, there are, all of my other papers have been available on the internet ever since but that theme stayed with me and when in um, 2012 I first saw the underground bunker um, with our redoubtable colleague Tony Ortega uh, I sort of went there are a lot of people who haven't actually recovered they may have found new words for the beliefs but mm -hmm. but they're still stuck in a view of the world which derives from ron hubbard and i, I don't you know where people end up with their views I, I really well as long as they're not harmful to other people as long as they're not doing things to hurt other people that's fine believe whatever you like i don't mind but seeing that this kind of cloning process whereby you know the fundamental principle of Scientology is that you will become self-determined. You will come into control of your own body and mind. And the, the counterweight to that, and a, an absolute way that Scientology functions, is to say you will be completely self-determined as long as you do exactly what you're told. <laughs> you will never rise to the level that Ron Hubbard did. You will never be able to discover technology. 
you know, ways of the, the deep secrets of the universe will always be obscured to you because only Ron Hubbard can, can see them, which is a rather difficult situation as, as his oldest child, Nibs said, uh, Scientology works not as L. Ron Hubbard says it works, but as L. Ron Hubbard intends it to work. And I think here's a fundamental point that Hubbard frequently talked about intention, other intention, and counterintention. His intention for Scientology was quite other to our intention. We wish to become free. We wish to become better. We wish to become more powerful. All of those things were denied to us. And you've uh, given us a link to a clip to a man called George Bailey, who is an OT8 and um, is haranguing our friend Stephen Jones on the street uh, for trying to talk to him about Scientology. And he really does represent what Scientology creates, which is a selfish, narcissistic, bullying, um, argumentative, aggressive human being. And you're stuck on the fucking time track. Is that right? Yeah. And you'll never get case scared, and I'm glad. Are you really glad? I'm glad. What about you? Where are you on the bridge? You don't have to know that. No, why don't you tell me? Aren't you proud of going up the bridge? Absolutely. Well, where are you then? Why should I talk to you? Well, shouldn't you be telling people about your gains? Absolutely. Not you, though. Because you're a squirrel. And you're stuck in your trap. And you know what? When you die, you'll die alone and in pain and in the dark. That's not what I wanted to achieve. And I'm very glad that, you know, 39 years ago, I left. And um, I must say that, that contrary to the expectation put forward by Scientologists, uh, my life just got better and better after I left Scientology. And, um, you know, I'm now a very happy human being at the age of 67. So I started to write blogs for, for Tony Ortega's bunker. I, I wrote well, blogs, articles, you know, something quite lengthy. I wrote about 70 pieces in all. And during that time, because I was applying myself to it, how does somebody realize that this has been done to them? Now, my great friend, Steve Hassan, many years ago, when we first met back in 89, he said this thing that he said often since, if you were brainwashed, how would you know it? If you were under mind control, how would you know it? And it's a very valuable question because here's the problem that, it's invisible to people. They don't realize that their behavior is um, programmed. Their behavior is following a, a set of patterns that have been laid in by Ron Hubbard. And the key is this, um, when uh, one of the titles for my book, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, was Hubbard Through the Looking Glass. And that's the title that Russell Miller still lists. He had the book and wrote his book sort of on top of the armature of my book, which is fine. We collaborated, we worked together. I, I wanted to see the material out there, even if I wasn't going to make any money from doing it, that was fine. But Hubbard Through the Looking Glass is the definition of Scientology. It is the opposite of what it promises to be. And it uses the very techniques that he is decrying. So what I came to was the realization that Scientology is a method of implanting. It's a method of taking people's minds over and enslaving them psychologically. How would you know if that had been done to you? So it, I then started looking at how, how that works. And one of the 
basic mechanisms is the double bind. So you say, you'll be totally free as long as you're enslaved by me. <laughs> and so often Hubbard used these contradictions. As I went back, I wrote a paper called um, Never Believe a Hypnotist. And that's a quotation from L. Ron Hubbard in Science of Survival, never believe a hypnotist. He also elsewhere confesses that at the age of 16, he learned hypnosis. And among the double binds, which many of which are indicated in never believe a hypnotist, and I think I read it out on camera, so it's on the site here. If, if, if somebody can't take, take the time to read it, they can listen to me pontificating. Um, in, one of the things I found in going back through Dianetics and Modern Science and Mental Health, a book I read three times while I was in Scientology, is there are massive contradictions. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, on the topic of hypnosis, he says hypnosis was not used in the research of Dianetics at one point in the book. At another point, he says, we relied upon hypno hypnosis to develop mm -hmm. Dianetics. And you start seeing, it starts coming out at you, that there are these many contradictions. The mm -hmm. whole of Scientology is built on the theory, or let's say hypothesis, that this is a two-terminal universe. You have positive and negative, and that's how you get, well, that's how you get electricity. But it doesn't actually explain gravity or the weak or strong nucleic forces. So there are three forces that are not explained by a two-terminal universe. But what Hubbard then does is he creates the whole goals, problems, mass structure, which will be grade six, the clearing course, the original OT1, OT2, where you're thrown in with these to be and not to be. See a light, feel electric shock, what have you. These are the implants. This is the simplistic model of the past that this man has put forward, that, that we were all, you know, 75 million years ago, or what, what have you, had this stuff put into our heads, which is these simple contradictions. And we are stuck in the middle, unable to decide because we have the plus and minus terminals going on. Scientology does exactly the same thing. It makes people incapable of thinking outside the box of Scientology. It makes yeah. people unable to contradict Ron Hubbard. And if you're self-determined, you would surely be able to do that. So that when in the false data stripping policy, L. Ron Hubbard says that Socrates gave us the syllogism, you'd be able to say, that's not true, Ron. As you said in the Phoenix lectures, it was Aristotle who gave us the syllogism. So even in false data stripping, which is exactly this idea of being caught and unable to make a decision because you've been given opposing information, Scientology then puts into your head a set of beliefs which are fanciful, which are not based upon evidence, but which you have to believe because what's true for you is true. And what's true for you is well, what Ron says, basically. Yeah. I, the year after I left, I just felt the most incredible sense of liberation that I no longer had to fit everything into this scheme, you know, which by then made less and less sense to me, you know. So th that's the starting point, the understanding that Scientology is a deliberate system of psychological imprisonment. And it leads to fanaticism. Um, further um, yes and so it's a yeah. radicalization we become more and more radical. john that's very well spoken you you hit it there i want to give two 
anecdotal stories yeah. that are so good in illustrating the points you just made. The first one is just an astounding story. I believe it happened around 1995. What happened is somebody leaked some computer knowledge from Scientology's computer division called Incom. It's a I-N-C-O-M-F, I think. And it got leaked to the web. And Miscavige went ballistic. Ballistic. And a mission was sent down. Susan Molstead and a couple of other missionaries. And everyone at Incom was ordered to form, form two lines. And like little robots, they did. And they had to empty all their pockets. And they were, with a wand, their bodies were searched for some, and they were screamed and bellowed at. You are a bunch of degraded beings, you're rock slammers, you're SPs. You're the Now remember, it was one person that did this, but this was now being screamed at 35 people. They were the scum of the earth. Now, you're not going home to your bed. You're going up to the sixth floor and you're going to live there till we say you can leave. Mm -hmm. and you're going to spend several hours a day confessing your crimes. You're going to have pencil and paper and you're going to just write every single bad deed you did until the missionaries give you a pass you're going to keep writing you're going to look at the evil you're evil evil people mm. your soul is evil confess anyway this nightmare went on day after day week after week but the first screaming incident happened on valentine's day february 14th Oh. So it was dubbed Valentine's Day Massacre. <laughs> yeah. Most of these people are long gone. They saw the evil. They saw the darkness of Scientology. Soon after this, you know, this whole, this was the, these were the executive, they, they departed. They have nothing to do with the cult. They saw this psychosis. So now, why did people obey? There's not one person that dared to speak up and say, I had nothing to do with that leak to the internet. Like they were so conditioned. I want a little feedback from you. One guy, a Swedish guy, was getting just so pulverized with this. She, I think she asked a question like, who of you here can admit you're a suppressive person? And in his overwhelm, he raised his hand and said, I think I am. I've done some suppressive action. She said, get out, out, out of the seal. Run out right now. You're expelled. Uh, he was uh, expelled on the spot for raising his hand to say he was suppressive. He was an overwhelmed CEO member from Sweden. Well let's just point something out here which is that in the antisocial personality the anti-scientologist ron hubbard says if you think you are a suppressive you definitely aren't one so 
They really didn't even know the basics, these people. They were being run by Miscavige, mm. and they were, they were, for the first time, int-based brutality had trickled down mm. outside of the high walls of int-base, because this all happened in Los Angeles. Mm. Income office was on Fountain Avenue, right? It's part of Big Blue. Big, big blue building, the yep. lowest floor was income. So, uh, and a guy who, a guy who's on Outer Banks, he was the OSA, uh, not rep, the OSA computer guy. Mm. He did all the computer. Yep. And he was, he lived through this. So day after day, month after month, week after week i think this went on for three months they were in prison they had to write up and when they first submitted there it was tossed back write more cough up more this is thitty weedy not good enough so a senior executive has the they couldn't talk to their spouses they were completely incarcerated in a bubble where they had it was a person within a person and this was the story of the demise of income. Mm. Now examine what happened to, but let's look at how obedient they all were. Yeah. They were terrorized, but they had been indoctrinated that backflashing against authority is mutiny mm. and you will pay the penalties of mutiny. And so they had become other determined. They were no, they were most certainly not pan-determined or self-determined. They and um, you know the, the whole construction, you know, what is the, the tone level of, of a member of the member of the C organization? It should be tone four or above, they should be enthusiastic. But the real tone is actually fear. That, that that is the, the life of somebody who is in the C organization. And it's been that way from the start. The 1968 documentary, Shrinking World of Aaron Hubbard, shows SEAL crew on the deck. And they are a poor and miserable lot. And you know, my heart goes out to, to what, what they suffered under um, Ron Hubbard's dictatorial tyranny. So we have this complete contradiction, this double bind. How are these people so obedient? Well. I would draw comparison to um, the contemporary situation in Russia. A friend of mine, my friend Eddie, told me last night there are what 134 million people in Russia, of whom 15,000 have been arrested for protesting the war in Ukraine. And he feels, well, you know, they they should be doing more. You know, they this is not good enough. And then you go, well, you've got to look at, at the culture that you're in, and the culture of Scientology, as with the culture of, of Russia is, um, well, I, I, I talked with a guy, he, he was from, um, I think he was from Estonia. And this, this was oh, way back in around about 1991 or something. And he'd been lured over, they were getting people from different countries, one at a time, claiming that you'd get a religious education without saying that they weren't Christian. And this guy actually, he trained pilots, that was his job. And, um, after a few days at St. Hill, 
he said, oh, I understand what's going on here. I grew up in a country where Stalin had been in charge. So you think one thing, you say another thing, and you do another thing. <laughs> and uh, he was rooted out the next day, or routed out. Oh, oh, wow. um, and we managed to get him back home, which was good. Nice. Um, but, but he, coming in from the outside, it was very obvious to him. Um, I'm told that the idea that if you put a frog in water and heat it up and it won't jump out oh. may, not, may not be true. <laughs> and I'm not, I've got frogs in my garden. I'm not going to try it on any of them. But that concept that, that when you get in the water, it feels comfortable. And if the temperature is just rises slightly. Now, you have, we, we have uh, social compliance. Those of us who are pro-social beings, we, we want to get along with other people, which makes us easy to exploit. You know, we will take stuff from other people and be polite about it and keep on going. So you've got that. You've then got the amount of obedience that is trained into people in the C organization, the compliances, the doing what you're told and snapping to it with no backflash, you know, no um, argument. That's totally against the notion of being self-determined even if you're in the US military, uh, you will be taught that you must not uphold and follow command intention, to use Ron Hubbard's phrase about Zilg. You must question any order that asks you to do something inhumane so that there's no repetition of the My Lai massacre in, in Vietnam, for example. But you are responsible. And that was the decision that was made at Nuremberg that you couldn't say befell is befell. You couldn't say orders are orders. I was just following orders. Um, and you know when um, Goering was challenged and, and he said, I did nothing but follow the law of my country. I did, I followed the law. Well, if the law is in fact inhumane, that's not an excuse either. So that, that's taken away from people. You start looking around to see if anybody else dares to make a noise. When I, Exit Council, um, Robert Vaughan Young and Stacey Young, which was mainly Stacey because Vaughan was kind of hanging around in the background because he didn't want to lose his belief in Scientology. This is a man who was on a master's degree um, in the philosophy of, no, philosophy of mind. So very smart man. Um, and yet he was frightened of listening to me because I might, might take away his belief. You know, he, he might learn that, you know, Cinderella was actually a character in a fairy story and not, not real. Um, but nonetheless, during the, the course of this, this conversation, it came out that seven years before they left, both of them had decided they wanted to leave and yeah. neither of them for seven years dared tell the other. Now, if you can get inside a marriage that far so that you're controlling the people, that, that, is, that is an amazing amount of control. And so you're meant to be learning how to use your intention to make things happen. What's really happening is that you are following the intention of David Miscavige now or Hubbard before, and you don't really have any say. That takes us off into the idea of groupthink. And um, you know, the Bay of Pigs is, is the classic example. In, in my book, Opening Our Minds, I get into these, these things, how, how people are controlled and what the psychology of that is. And you have this incredible situation where, um, I think my numbers are right, 2,000 um, troops are sent in to Cuba 
to fight an army of 180,000. They're sent in with the idea that, that the people will just flock to follow them at a point where the CIA have done a, a poll and they found that Fidel Castro is in fact the most popular leader in the world among his own people. He has an 80% approval rating or something. They're sent into a place where if things go wrong, they're gonna to have to cut their way through jungle at a mile a day for about 80 miles to get to the point. It was a fiasco. And when it, it came out, it proved to be the case that, that John F. Kennedy had not been told that these simple numbers, these things that you add together, it was bound to go wrong. And that led to um, Irving Janis coming to this idea of groupthink. He wasn't the first person to use the word, but he wrote a very interesting book about it. And this need to comply, um, which is, is not innate, I don't think. Um, there's a test called the ash test where you put three lines of different lengths and you have seven or eight people in the room who will all lie and say they're all the same length and you're testing this one other person you brought into the room now originally when the ash test was done and ash believed that people wouldn't do this he was trying to disprove um, what another psychologist had said and to his horror he found that most people would actually say oh yeah the lines are the same length and there is an exception to this, however, in engineering and science classes, they've found that nobody will agree that the lines are the same length. So there are certain cultures, there are certain ways of looking at things. And in Scientology, the way of looking at things is what would Ron do? What would Ron say? Yes, that's the filter. Yeah, and that's not self-determined. It has to be the guru. You know, that's, yeah, that's... I, I, I started this by saying I've got two anecdotes mm. that help you elaborate and magnify the points you're making. Mm. And, and this was now 20 years earlier, John, 20 years earlier. I believe the year was 1977. Another massacre internally purged brutal, brutal thing happened where Hubbard decided, even though he tried to come out of it, he, he was the source, that if you had ever had a jiggle wiggle, violent move on the meter, you were a rock star. And hundreds of people, all the executives of the planet were thrown into the RPF prison for hard manual labor. Later, they found out that a, a, a faulty wire, or there could be all kinds of reasons for no, that. No, no, there's, there's, there's an exact reason. It's uh, the old emitters had what's called a carbon potentiometer in them. That's like a dimmer switch on a, on a light, that, and that's what the tone arm is. It's just basically a dimmer switch. Mm -hmm. And because they were made of carbon, every time you moved it, it was giving off dust, and the dust was going into the machine. And there's a story behind this story. When Otto Rose um, Hubbard got sick yet again, uh, around about 1970, I think it was, every year he'd get sick, he'd get bronchial pneumonia, because if you smoke 80 or 100 cigarettes a day, you know, your bronchial have a little bit of a problem. So that was how the clearing caused an OT3. Everything came out of him recovering from something he'd done to himself um, in this way. So Otto, and I interviewed Otto over... Or three days back in 1984 oh. 
uh, all of it we've got it all on tape as well one of these days um, and he told me about this and he said that while Hubbard was sick so the same thing would happen every time you'd have to go through all of his folders and find every scrap of paper he'd ever written on and Hubbard had made this pronouncement about the rock slam this you know, jagged movement of the needle thrashing about that this indicated it was originally indicated the rock which was meant to be the thing that was causing you to not be in total control of your life um, and then he decided that it meant that you had evil purposes. And Otto, in going through Hubbard's files, found more than 200 rock slams. Mm -hmm. When he pointed this out to Hubbard, he was given his passport and put ashore. And that was the end of it. He'd been the head of the technology of Scientology. But by turning around to Hubbard and saying, you have 200 of these, then, as you say, around about 77, I've been told about a quarter of the crew at the Flag Land Base in Clearwater actually were put into the Gulag, the, the rehabilitation project force, because they had Roxland. You move down later, and in about 1981-82, we're told that we have to pay to have our e-meters serviced, yes. called Silver Ceiling. And um, what they're doing is they're hastily replacing the carbon potentiometers. Now, I knew there was something wrong, and you must have known it too, because you could have an e-meter rock slamming with no electrodes, no cans plugged in. <laughs> so something in the machine was doing it. And they were very cheap machines. They were very badly made. I think the Mark VI Texas Instruments quoted $38 as the production cost in 81, and it was sold for... 2,000 or 5,000 or what have you. And they're awful, you know, they're cheap and nasty. Um, but, but yes, you, so you get this, here we are, we're, we're caught in this contradiction, you know, the emu to this fantastic instrument. And uh, in fact, it's got something dreadfully wrong with it. So, so hundreds of top executives who really believe they were joining a movement to free themselves of the demons and help mankind that's a big recruiter but help do something bigger than yourself help make this planet a better planet for your children and grandchildren all these puffing puffing these huff and puff Wait. things rope you in and then Wait. no no but then overnight you were this <laughs> So much for man is basically good. You were this evil rock slammer, and you needed and and you know people really examine this horror of hundreds of people, all the top execs of every all being RPF because they had just purchased the Cedars complex and it needed a lot of manual renovations, which would become the Cedar. Sinai Hospital left a lot of hospital equipment. The mm. refrigerators in the morgue, there was even a head in a refrigerator. When they opened it, a head stared at that, a decapitated head. There was all kinds of brick and brick. A, a crematorium and, there with, with uh, human body parts in it, which was yes, still exactly. out as late as 1993, to my knowledge. Well, when Cedars moved, it was out of there and it didn't care what it left behind. Yeah. So, Hundreds of people overnight became slaves. 
And there, seven, eight hours a day of heavy manual labor was to <laughs> talk about reparations. These guys worked their tush off morning, noon, and night, but they obeyed. They obeyed. They were told, you are an RSA. You've got bad, evil intentions in your soul. You've got evil. You're an evil human being. They had been recruited based on the fact man is basically good. Now, two, three years later, they were being in, in, implanted. This is why you call it implanted, that you are basically evil. And only we, by making you slave and clean up cedar signing eye leftovers and working and painting and chipping in eight hours a day and confessing you, only we can undo your evil and make you a decent human being. Now, this was 20 years earlier than Valentine's Day massacre. Yep. Same old thing, perch, you are evil and you will slave in a camp and we will reform your thought and flush out your evil. You were gonna say something, John? Oh, I'm always going to say something, you know me. Um, it it's it is fascinating that the for me the the fundamental error in Scientology and many psychological disciplines and in many religions is the belief that you have an invisible enemy inside you that is affecting your behavior and your intentions. It's not true. Um, some people have this idea of the unconscious mind. Hubbard had the reactive mind. And there, there is no unconscious mind. There are unconscious processes in us, and they're incredible. They're, they're wonderful. The, the, the things that go on are remarkable. But those unconscious processes, there isn't a, somebody or something making that happen. They're an aspect of, of you. They're, they're an aspect. So there isn't an enemy within. That division against yourself, that mounting distrust that, that is injected into sea organization members day after day after day, drip by drip by drip, that they cannot trust themselves, that they are inferior, as you say, the term degraded being is used when they're being pushed into severe reality adjustments, which is uh, what L. Ron Hubbard called standing an inch away from somebody and screaming at them, which must have been truly awful with Hubbard because of his rotten bad breath, you know, because of his rotting teeth. I'm, I'm very glad I didn't meet him. Um, but that you are being diminished. You're not being made more powerful or stronger. You are being put into a, a machine where you are just a cog that will make this machine move. And what is inevitable in Scientology is that if you rise to the point near the top, you will fall to the point at the bottom. All of the great, the legendary Scientologists over the years, people like Otto Rose or uh, John McMaster, uh, they all fell. They, they were all reduced. Um, what is astonishing is that so many of them continued to believe. And um, we have this bizarre situation where aspects of Scientology, this isn't somebody something that somebody can do for you. This is something you have to do for yourself. Somebody can't tell you 
you have to actually see, you have to actually catch hold of what's, what's happened. I tell the same story repeatedly. In 2013, the first person I spoke to, having decided that I would see if I could help people to recover, she was uh, two or three years old when uh, her parents got involved with Scientology. She was sexually abused by her stepfather from the age of six or seven. He was a Scientologist, he had money, and so nobody did anything about it. When she was 11 years old, and this is all in the public record, I'm not you know, going into anything confidential, she gave interviews, uh, TV interviews. Um, at 11 years old, she, because of a neighbor, another child's mum, went, you need to go to the police. She reported it to the police. Then Scientology's Citizens Commission on Human Rights, headed by Jan Eastgate, went and persuaded her to withdraw the complaint. Um, the Australian police, you know, how awful that, that they would not just say, you can't do that. We are going to investigate this. Five years later, she went, so she was put back into the same household with this guy who was violent and beat her and her brother. Um, by this time, he was no longer interested in her sexually because she was now uh, 11 years old. So that was, he later confessed and was sentenced for what he did. So there's no question that this happened. At the age of 16, to escape the household, she joined the SEA organization. She spent five years in the SEA organization and then she left and she went and got a university degree. I was approached by Steve Kinane, the ABC Australia television. Wonderful man. Absolutely. Wonderful. I wrote a great book called Fair Game, which, which yes. is hilarious and brilliant and shows you just how stupid Hubbard was in that he very nearly lost everything because he refused to repay 3000 Australian dollars. Um, to a guy who happened to have tremendous political influence. It was really foolish of him to do this. But Steve, the first time I met him, he came here in uh, so early 2013, and he's a journalist. And at the end of interviewing me, he said, there's this woman and, and I'd like you to help her. And I'm sort of, I, I don't really do that kind of thing anymore, Steve. But if, if you could, you know, so I learned how to use Skype. And um, I talked with her. And the... The, the first thing was I'd expected I'd be talking to a woman in her 20s. Yeah. She wasn't. She was, uh, I think she was 37. So she'd had 16 years away from Scientology, but because she grew up in it, she had no alternative reality to return to. Mm -hmm. So she was still caught in this thing. And when we first spoke, she said, is it true that reality is an agreement? Ron Hubbard's <laughs> definition of reality. And I said, if you're the hypnotist, yes. But um, for the rest of us, no, it's uh, you're actually determining it yourself and interpreting it yourself. And it's not there because we're all, as Ron Hubbard said, chanting space particle position, space particle position all the time. It's just there, whether you're saying anything or not. So this was this is my method. So next week she came back and she said. Um, I've used scented laundry conditioner my washing and we both knew what she was saying but this is the important thing we hadn't talked about the sea organization hygiene hat about ron hubbard's paranoia about rose perfume about any of this she all of her life had avoided perfumes because of what was in the hygiene hat for the sea org 
member uh, while she was doing her estates project force or what have you. And now without any conversation with me, without, this is why I say people have to do this for themselves. Um, the Buddha said, uh, I can't give you the moon. I can be a finger pointing at the moon. Well, that's about as much as I can do. And most people don't want to look. That's the frightening truth. You know, when I left Scientology and started going, there are all these contradictions in what Hubbard says. He's a liar. He contradicts himself. It's not somebody on the outside saying it. You know, he was a wounded war hero, crippled and blinded, according to my philosophy. Yet in um, Communication and Isness from, I think, 1957, a professional auditor's bulletin, he was down in Hollywood at the end of July and beat <laughs> up three petty officers. One of these statements is not true. Yeah. Uh, so he was a liar. And the statement that honesty is sanity and that the road to truth is trod with true steps did not apply to Ron Hubbard. So we get into this place where if you can question something he said, anything, if you can see that, in fact, look it up. Socrates was not the guy who gave us the syllogism. Hubbard made mistakes. He lied. He contradicted himself. Um, and we didn't notice it. That's the important thing that this thing was was set up. The man who talks about, you know, if you have a misunderstood word, that will make you do harm to others, commit overts, as he put it, if you have a misunderstood word. Well, I remember the first course, well, actually the second course, I did the dictionary course. The second course I did in Scientology was a communication course. And the first part of it was operating Thetan training routine zero. So you've got to know what an operating Thetan is if you're not going to be committing overts against Scientology. There's a bit of a contradiction there. We have never evaluate for the preclear, but of course the preclear has read Dianetics and knows what's expected. And when you get to OT3, there's no choice. It's total evaluation. It's not like go and look around this time on this planet and see what you find. It's this is what happened to you. Never. Auditor's code, never evaluate the contradictions start to stream through. And what happens is you become willing to challenge them. You become willing to say that that actually doesn't make sense. Rather than being in the fog of trying to wonder if you'll ever get to a high enough level in Scientology that you understand the gibberish. Hubbard, having told us that misunderstood words cause all this trouble, then gives us two dictionaries. I used to say two 500-page dictionaries, but I've looked at them. They're 600-page dictionaries. Two dictionaries of neologisms, of new words, which you are going to stumble around in. Um, because again, the conflict and contradiction in these things is so tremendous. I mean, some of them are funny. So for example, um, it's a tough universe and only the tigers survive. Ron Hubbard said that. Definition of a tiger, go and look in the admin dictionary. It's a staff member who won't do their work properly. They're the only ones that survive. They're, that's a silly one, but there is so much you know, if you look at Obnosis in the Tone Scale, the bulletin, and you look at Scientology 8, 8008, and their statements about chronic and social tone, they're in complete contradiction. Um, and if you point that out, as I did when I was doing the Class Zero course many years ago, you get sent to qualifications to be yeah. topped off. You know? yeah. now, thankfully, in those, those days, you didn't have to pay for it. Then they introduced this thing where you had to pay for it you were sent to call but it doesn't hold together and it doesn't make sense it's it's a all about the nonsense 
and all about the contradictions yeah and to become an operating thetan you have to actually exteriorize from scientology <laughs> you have to get the hell out of scientology if you are going to become self-determined and go which of these things is true not what's true for me is true because that just says whatever i want to believe is true and that's an absolute nonsense but what the Buddha said in the Kalama Sutta, which is fundamentally, don't trust the opinions of your teachers, the opinions of your parents, the opinions of angels that whisper in your ear, uh, your own opinions and imagination. Don't trust me. Check everything. See if it's true. In Scientology, you don't check things. You just do what you're told. And that's, that's enough. And your realizations, your cognitions will be largely, Ron was right. Yes. Rather than anything new or, or vital or interesting. So. John, you've given some incredibly valuable nuggets of data here. This was very enjoyable. I almost would like a part two of the same theme because Let's do that. I've got more. Good. Good. Let's do the next. Let's not interfere with other subjects. Let's go straight into this in the next show because. I want to, I want to get, once you, you, <laughs> you're a fountain of just, if I, if I, I just have to give you a right, truthful anecdote of an actual occurrence, and you've got all the research and all the wisdom in the world to analyze it, look at it from 360 degrees, like a little satellite buzzing around Earth, looking at this angle, that angle. So John, I, 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 I think we've done well over an hour. Let's, let's do part two when we're back together in a month or so. Let me, or, add, just, let me add just one thing, which I think is vitally important. In 2014, I, I set about creating the Open Minds Foundation. Mm -hmm. And the idea was very simply realizing that Scientology is one of thousands of groups that use the same techniques to enslave people psychologically. I mean, mm. you know, Scientology uses most of them. People like the Rajneeshis or Transcendental Meditation, they have some of them. So I became interested in those techniques. And I, you know, spent years studying this, how they affect, you know, radicalization in terrorism. Um, I'm now published by the Oxford University Press on that subject, um, to my own amazement. But I spent the 90s studying terrorism and extreme groups and going, this is authoritarianism. And I believed when I set about the Open Minds Foundation that lots of ex-Scientologists would say, we really don't want the next generation to be enslaved psychologically. And so we will join in with this work to educate the world. Given the toolbox that we have, we're people who've been through the experience, we know what happened. The reality is that most people walk away and don't think about it, which is a bad idea. Many people become involved in all of the little daily firefights about whether David Miscavige is this, that or the other and what's going on, which, which is interesting and needs to happen. But we have something that we can give to the world, which is incredibly important. And this, this is the way I break it down. If we are going to have an environment for our children and grandchildren to live in, then we need to deal with warfare. 
It's not just a matter of being eco-friendly. We have to stop fighting wars because the damage they create to the environment is, yes. you know, all the depleted uranium shells that were dropped in Iraq and this kind of thing. It's absolutely dreadful. It's a complete waste of resources that could be used otherwise. My belief is until we can conquer authoritarianism, until we can each of us or most of us think for ourselves and make decisions for ourselves and be liberated in exactly the way that Scientology promises and exactly the way that it does not deliver, until we can do that, we won't be capable of having a proper democracy. And we will continue to follow bullies and loudmouths who boast about their certainty in things. And we need to change that rapidly. And we are the people, we've got all the training. All you have to do is quick, you know, quickly bone up on the, um, the psychology and just read my book, Opening Our Minds. It's in there. That's, you know, 40 years of work to, to understand that. It's simple, it's straightforward. We have the tools and we can change the world by giving this material to others rather than obsessing on what happened to us and how bad it is and all that, which, as I say, absolutely has to be done. It's vital that people of, of your depth of experience speak out, but we can change the world. We don't have to be just sat here complaining about the past. We can change the future. Um, so that's, that's my author's message for today. <laughs> I'm going to go tweet oh, this opening our minds. I'm going to tweet it to here, there, and everywhere. Um, Thank you. I should have done, I should have done that. I get so swamped in all this, but I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do a fast promotion. John, love you lots. Love you too. Very soon. Yeah. This was very cool. Thank you, John. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you, John. Bye bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.